0: Hello and welcome to episode 221 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director here at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Kim Shelby. And with me, but not with me this week, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady. Bill is currently uh, the face of, or one of the faces of the sunken submersible that was uh, out looking after the Titanic. Uh, Bill is doing live news segments all day today and unfortunately can't be with us, but we have our ever faithful uh, co-host, co-host and my my often wingman historian, John Parshall. John, good to have you as always. Thanks for being here. Love it.
1: I'm gonna do our our back to back double header today.
0: Indeed, yes, indeed, indeed, and we got a pretty cool topic we're going to talk about today that uh, is an influencer on a lot that happens for the rest of the war. Um, On November 1st, 1943, Admiral William Halsey's forces surprised the Japanese. And I do mean surprised the Japanese when they made a full-scale landing at Cape Torakina on Bougainville. Expecting an American landing, but not expecting it at that location. The Japanese were stunned when the Marines of the third division waded ashore and pushed inland. Responding to the threat, the Japanese sent a surface force to destroy the Allied transports offshore that night, but in turn were destroyed themselves in the Battle of Empress Augusta Bay. Japanese Commander-in-Chief Combined Fleet Koga Minichi responded to the action off Empress Augusta by shuttling a strong force of heavy cruisers to Rabaul in preparation for another strike at the Americans offshore on Bougainville of Bougainville. Allied intelligence told Admiral William Halsey that the Japanese were building surface units in Rabaul and anticipated the counterstrike. cussing over his lack of potent surface vessels to respond to any Japanese threat. Halsey decided to send his carrier task group to raid Rabaul and hopefully knock out the threat staring him in the face before that threat smacked him in the mouth. With that decision in his mind, Halsey ordered the venerable old USS Saratoga and the new light carrier Princeton to attack the fortress of Rabaul. An additional strike a couple days later would augment the initial strike and would see the introduction of the ships that would carry the war all the way to Tokyo Bay. In all, these events are lumped together and known as the carrier raids on Rabaul. John, this is not some piecemeal operation, is it?
1: Yeah. No. This is this is a, a kind of an interesting inflection point in the, in the war as a whole. I think in that um, <clears throat> the ability of carrier forces to really bring the war against powerful Japanese bases was sort of an unknown. Um, you got the same sort of thing manifesting uh, with respect to truck up in the Carolines. That up to this point in the war, uh, both ball and truck have got these sort of outsized reputations as this is scary, man. We don't want to go anywhere near those places because they are just absolutely chock-a-block with Japanese defenders and aircraft and the whole schmear.
0: Yeah, and Rabaul is certainly, <laughs> it, it holds that place in the American mindset. And we'll we'll get to yeah. that and why here in just a second. But let's talk about Rabaul before we get to the raid. Prior to the Japanese invasion of Rabaul, Rabaul was actually on the list of allied bases, uh, Simpson Harbor, you, we've mentioned it when we've done previous episodes specifically on Guadalcanal. You've talk, we've talked about Rabaul a lot. And Simpson Harbor is very akin to Pearl Harbor and has this beautiful, natural, deep water port, right? Yeah,
1: it's one of the premier anchorages in the entire Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's, a, it's a big body of water, um, <clears throat> nicely protected in the... the and the inlet into the bay can be easily controlled if if it's your uh, port, and so yeah, th- this was a a bay that both sides recognized could be a very valuable anchorage if they could get a hold of it and and keep it.
0: Yeah, and 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 to that end, the Japanese saw it as a much more desirable location than did the Australians that were actually there initially. The Australians simply—it's not that they didn't want to keep it; they just didn't have the guys to do it. To do it, uh, you know. Yeah. When the Japanese take Rabaul in forty two, which is it for yeah, January fourteenth, nineteen forty-two. Consider the war situation at that point.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Taking Rabal was all part of, of what we would call, you know, the octopus or the the centrifugal offensive. Rabal had been slated in uh to the much larger Japanese plan of campaign, which was rolling south. From around the Philippines, frankly, the logistical hub was Davao, uh, the city of Davao on Mindanao in the Philippines, and from that port, all of these forces were streaming into the the southern resource area, aiming themselves at Java. But one of the sort of the side campaigns that happens during that initial offensive in the January February time frame is a force of japanese basically goes along the northern coast of new guinea and plucks off a number of the places like we and so forth there and then at the same time they the japanese come down raid Rabaul and capture it
0: mm-hmm. and the, the australians pulled out the majority of their people before the japanese came there but there are still there are about a thousand aussies that are captured by the japanese yeah. When they take Rabaul and these guys, as we know, uh, and we're going to do an episode separately on prisoners of, of the Japanese, these guys face a very harsh lifestyle, yeah. uh, those who are fortunate enough to survive. Um, so following the capture of Rabaul, the Japanese, John, they pour yeah. resources into this area.
1: Yeah, as I say in my book manuscript, um, you know, the Japanese view Rabaul as sort of the perfect little fixer-upper. And uh, at this point in the war, it could be had for a song, and they took it. And very quickly, it becomes the linchpin of everything that they are doing down in this neck of the woods. And by the time this war ends, uh, and even by now, and, and when I say now, I'm talking, you know, end of '42 and middle part of '43. There's a hundred thousand Japanese service uh, personnel on Inrebal. And that is Navy personnel, Army. Um, Rabal is the headquarters of two separate armies, 17th and 18th Army uh, at one point. And then there's 8th Area Army is riding herd on those two armies themselves. So there's a lot of Army personnel here. There are, I believe, five airfields in the immediate vicinity, uh, two of which uh, uh excuse me, which... Uh, Duna Canal and Rapopo both have concrete runways, which is completely unheard of uh, in this right. neck of the woods. You know, I, I can't remember off the top of my head if if Port Moresby has a concrete runway or not. I think I, I'm not sure. But, you know, even if Moresby does, I mean, <laughs> there aren't a lot of concrete runways. There may not mm-hmm. be another concrete runway within a thousand miles of this place uh, until you get up to truck. So, the,
0: the only, yeah, the only one I could think of would be at Munda, is when they were building right. Munda Field in New George. That's it.
1: That's it. Right. So, uh, it, it's just a warren. Uh, it's got a lot of logistical uh, facilities that have been built uh, in the town of Rabal itself. It's got a lot of tunnels and whatnot. This is a, it's it's not a base, as I say, it's, it's a complex mm. of airfields, facilities, the whole, the whole schmear. It's a big deal.
0: So, the likening it, of Rabaul to Pearl Harbor is not a stretch at all.
1: Not that much of a stretch. I mean, it's not yeah. in the same league, obviously, as as Pearl Harbor, but it's kind of the same breed of cat. It's yeah. a very formidable uh, obstacle. It has, at any given time, it's going to have a hundred plus aircraft there, a lot of anti aircraft guns, over three hundred anti aircraft guns, which are manned by both Army and Navy personnel, and in one of the sort of rare instances of uh inter-service cooperation between the japanese army and navy they've actually fairly rationally allocated how the anti-aircraft guns on this island are going to be divided up and okay i'm going to watch over this airfield you've got control over the airspace over the town you know et cetera. Et cetera. it's a it's a, a very formidable objective
0: yeah and I mean, it's so formidable that the entire Southwest Pacific operations of Admiral Halsey in combination with MacArthur are focused on cutting this sucker off, yeah, operation so the Party. operate, yeah, exactly. Cartwheel is is the entire thing is set about to cut this Rabal fortress, which is what it is. off so the invasion of new georgia is to establish airfields to further leapfrog up bougainville is directly related to the capture of Rabaul, or or not the capture but the the neutering
1: of Yeah, isolation and neutralization yeah 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 that's right
0: so allied air forces had been attacking Rabaul for months uh these were not carrier forces these are general kenny who is we've going on and on about him you know this he's the man uh this is kenny's forces the fifth air force are attacking rabal with you know heavy bombers when they can fighters 38s generally when they can the royal uh, australians are the australians are attacking rabal when they can so well then i don't believe the new zealanders are because they don't have the range maybe you can correct me on that but regardless yeah regardless that rabal is under not constant but fairly consistent air attack um Kenny's Fifth Air Force, to that point, they'd been bombing Rabaul randomly at here and there whenever they could get out there uh, since October. Weather, technical issues, and supplies caused the bombing campaign to be less than frequent than desired. And the results, frankly, honestly, with the exception of the whittling down of the fighter forces, had been less than stellar. So, you know, the, the attempt was made to knock out Rabal's anti-aircraft forces that you were talking about, knock out the runways and the in the airfield, all over. But they hadn't done that, uh, you know, yeah. Kenny's people just had not done that.
1: Um, well, and that, and that speaks, too, to just the incredible difficulty of actually knocking out an airfield. I mean, people have this mental image, I think, in many cases of, oh, well, you just go and you bomb it. And you put craters in the runway and then, you know, it, it's out of business. It's like, no, um, it, actually, airfields are are relatively resilient and if you have taken the time to do things like build individual aircraft revetments for all of the planes that so they can be dispersed and and semi-enclosed they become very difficult targets to take out it's pretty easy to uh, protect your aircraft it's easy to fill in those runways after a bombing attack and get that base up and running again and two if you've got a concrete runway um that is a very resilient target and and difficult Mm -hmm. to knock out so the fact that yeah you've got not one but two different air air airfields here with concrete runways and other you know dispersion fields as well you know okay maybe i have a good raid today and i'm able to knock one of those fields out temporarily but the japanese still have four other airfields in the area Mm -hmm. it makes it it's it's a multi-headed monster. You can't kill it all at once.
0: Right. And, and then on top of that, you got this absolutely perfect natural harbor with its ring, multi-rings of defense that if there were surface forces, warships I'm talking about, or or cargo ships, that are to get into this harbor, which as we have seen over the process of many of these episodes, there's almost always shipping in Rabaul. Yeah. They're going to be well defended so and and that's that's it's kind of staring that uh staring the allies in the face at this point is this beast that yeah. they can't seem to kill right
1: i i will so, say as far as the yeah. japanese are concerned this is not um this is not seen as a plum assignment uh in being stationed to Rabaul either uh you know we've just gotten done talking about the illusions and how that was not seen as a great place to serve Rabaul likewise is not because the reason that the that harbor is so beautiful is it is the caldera of an active volcano, and there are two active volcanoes on either side of the harbor. One of actually both of which had erupted in 1937 and absolutely flattened the town, uh, and they will go on again. Uh, I believe it's in 2009. Rabaul gets flattened again by these same volcanoes, so. You know, okay, great. It's a lovely harbor, but I'm also, you know, snuggling up to a volcano, one of which is active and is always, you know, fumarating and doing doing its thing. So there's volcanic ash all over the place and the air quality is pretty wretched and yada, yada, yada. It's 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 not a complete garden spot, I guess I would say. But (laughs) yeah.
0: So so as, as the Americans land at Bougainville in November. Uh, on November 1st. Exactly. Uh, Allied aircraft, specifically Strafers and P-38s from Kenny's Fifth Air Force, attacked Rabal the following day on November the 2nd. And this is what's known as Black Tuesday in the history of the Fifth Air Force. This is an operation that, as we'll see here in just a second, you know, is talked about being this massive success, but in reality is literally the farthest thing from that. Um, Kenny sends nine squadrons of B-25s, 72 aircraft altogether, escorted by 80-ish P-38s to attack Simpson Harbor. Uh, Eight B-25s were lost and nine P-38s, and about 50 guys were lost in this raid that Kenny called, as I said, Black Tuesday. Despite the losses, Kenny and MacArthur uh, lauded the November 2nd raid, calling it a decisive defeat of the Japanese fortress of
1: Rabaul that's that's my man macarthur you know yeah how to how to spin a, a press release on something that uh is actually not all that spectacular and turn it into you know the second coming of christ so yeah he was he was <laughs> sorry that just popped out you know. yeah but it's it's right. it's
0: true though because yeah. look at the look at the results of the raid so in reality the Japanese literally completely shrugged off the raid. They were like, yeah. "Yeah, get off my shoulder." Right. Japanese sources saying that only 18 of their aircraft were destroyed, as compared to the 90 that were claimed by General Kenny. Right. While one sub chaser and two merchant ships were sunk. So, right. You know, as we've said a hundred times, any loss of life life is significant. However, this is nothing compared to what was actually, you know stated by the press and general and kenny just, for all his good points this is not one of his finer
1: points. One of them. i'm actually I'm, I'm just doing the math here real quick on yeah. uh meanwhile there's the american casualties right so mm-hmm. we lose we lose 17 aircraft out of those 152 that get committed so this is this is an 11 percent attrition rate uh for this particular raid the- you can't keep that kind of stuff up. I and mean, then that is no. that's an awful um exchange rate that that's yeah. we've just had to pay.
0: It is. And I think uh, we, we need to put this in perspective in that, you know, people are gonna say, well, it's only eleven, you know, eleven percent. Yeah, and eleven percent for the eighth Air Force would be like, yeah, that's not bad. This is the fifth Air Force. Right. These this they're not getting the supply chain that the eighth and the ninth Air Forces are getting these they're getting the the scraps they're getting the leftovers in the fridge is what they're getting so anything that they lose is a significant loss not just because it's human lives but because of that machine that they might not have it to replace yeah yeah so,
1: even for eighth air force this would be a significant sure. punch yeah. in the chin and and one of the things that makes air combat sort of different from um ground combat is when we think about ground combat, we're, we often think in terms of um, significant clashes, you know, big battles. You get a big battle, a lot of casualties happen, but then, you know, there's there's not a lot of activity until the next big battle. Air combat is different. Air combat, these guys are going up every day in some cases, or every other day, every third day. There's this constant drumbeat of attritional combat happening in the air, and if you run the math on a you know a force that even takes something that sounds trivial like you know three or four percent casualties and compile the cumulative attritional rate over the course of like six months time you realize that man even if i take that low level of individual raids only giving up three four percent casualties i come out of the end of the pipeline of six months with only half of my force left Mm -hmm. so 11%, Eleven percent—that is a real, a real hit in the schnoz as far as, as Kenny's Air Force is concerned. This is a bad day.
0: It is. It is indeed, and and it, and it just shows how tough of a nut Rabal is to crack. You know, I mean, the anti-aircraft forces or uh, any aircraft that is arrayed around the 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 base itself is would be formidable in Europe. Yeah, much less here. I mean, you're over 300 and some odd anti-aircraft weapons of varying sizes, most of which are plane killers. These aren't, you know, 20 millimeters. These are some some powerful weapons that are up there that can throw a lot of lead.
1: Yeah, I, I don't I don't know the exact composition. Uh, I would speculate to say that you know you would find a lot of the Navy's uh, older 4.7 inch, uh, the 120 millimeter mounts there. But there's also going to be a lot of twenty five millimeter uh you, you just find that all over the Pacific when you go to places like you know Saipan or or uh Peleliu you know that that gun is endemic uh to Japanese mm. fortifications and you know it's not the greatest it's not the greatest light aA in the world but yeah if you got several hundred of them that you have to go yeah. through uh it's it's problematic
0: yeah this is significant stuff so after Admiral Omori, who we hear about literally one time and then never hear about him again, uh, his abrupt failure at Empress Augusta Bay to destroy the Allied transport fleet that is tanked off of uh, off of Cape Torakina, um, which by the way Omori was relieved after this failure, uh, yeah. Admiral Koga decides that he's got to send something bigger out yeah. there. He's 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 sitting there in at truck and he's like, you know what? I'm not going to sit a, a, a penny any force down there. We're going to go down there and punch these guys in the mouth and end this crap right now. He sends a powerful force down that Koga does, a powerful force down to Rabal to fuel up and then go down there and kick that ass, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, pretty much these are uh the group that he sends down there are the most modern heavy cruisers in the japanese inventory and and the the contrast here between the force that koga is sending and the force that admiral Mikawa used at the battle of sabo island that was very much you know maybe the C team those were some of the oldest cruisers in the japanese inventory and he absolutely mopped the floor with Turner and Crutchley's force that night. This group that's going down there includes um, all four of the Otago class uh, heavy cruisers, two of the remaining three Makuma class, which are slightly newer, and then one of the two Tone class, the Chikuma, which is one of the two newest cruisers in the Japanese inventory. So these are extremely powerful, capable, warships uh and not the kind of thing that yeah if you're a surface action group off of bougainville you don't want to be tangling with these guys not at night
0: no and 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 to that point if if you've watched our episode on bougainville you you know that halsey doesn't have much of a surface force around there are what's you know the 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 forces that that engage japanese at empress augusta bay but they're actually they're They're back refueling and replenishing ammunition right now. So they're not even on scene. They can't get out there, theoretically. They couldn't get out there in time to deal with this. And if you recall, we had said that, you know, at Book or before Bougainville, Halsey was bitching for lack of a better term to Nimitz saying, I need heavier forces here. All I got are these light cruisers, Cleveland class cruisers, which are fantastic vessels, but they can't go toe to toe with. A heavier Japanese vessel and expect to survive. At least that's what Halsey thought. Yeah. So his his premonition of I need heavier surface forces actually does come to fruition here. Yes. And he starts to sweat some bullets. So at this stage in the invasion, Halsey was actually unaware of the sortie of the Japanese forces or their intentions, Halsey's focus was on two things at this juncture. One was Bougainville, obviously, and two, his depleted forces. As I had just mentioned, he had been ordered to send uh, what remained of his surface forces. A lot of them were refueling and replenishing. Admiral Merrill's people, uh, most of the Cleveland-class cruisers were ordered to be sent up to Nimitz's forces that were uh, starting to come together for the operation at Tarawa, Operation Galvanic. Admiral Merrill's Task Force 39, which included the cruiser like Montpelier and, and, and ships like that, were gone. They right. were already gone. They, they were plowing north, trying to get to Pearl Harbor to get with Nimitz's people as they were starting to, or Spruance's people were actually, as they were starting to make their push westwards towards the towards Tarawa Atoll.
1: Meaning, so this, this beachhead is naked.
0: Pretty much, yeah. I mean, he's got a few D D S, but. That's not gonna do anything
1: to these yeah. guys. Right.
0: So all he really has, he being Halsey as at his disposal are two aircraft carriers. Now, we've talked, you know, ad nauseum about the aircraft carriers off Guadalcanal. And you know, at one point, of course, there was only Hornet, and at another point, there was only Enterprise. So having two carriers for Halsey would have been, you know, like at Guadalcanal Ooh. would have been <laughs> yeah, right. serious stuff. But at this stage in the war, two carriers is mm, you know and considering the carriers that are here and we're gonna we're gonna you know bring their reputations to light here, but um the two ships that he had at his stage was the brand new USS Princeton, which I know you have an affinity for. Yeah. and the other one was the old lady. she was the at this time the oldest aircraft carrier in the United States fleet. She hadn't seen combat in over a year and thus far had taken part in only one battle that being eastern solomons and had spent the vast majority of the war sucking up torpedoes and spending time in the yard that of course is uss saratoga so, so,
1: yeah yeah, i was gonna mention the same thing she really did have a nasty habit of running across submarines that would want to put one yeah. fish into her you know, and send her <laughs> back to the back to the yard so yeah she yeah. she was uh, yeah, kind of star-crossed uh, up to this point in the war, and her, her glamorous sister, Lexington, of course, is, uh, went down in the first carrier battle. Um, and yeah, Sarah has not exactly um, upheld the family reputation uh, up to this point, unfortunately.
0: No, she, she does pretty good at Eastern Solomons, or her she air does. group does pretty good at Eastern Solomons. And to her credit, that's really her only crack at a carrier battle right. is Eastern Solomon's because she's always frigging damaged. She's a torpedo magnet, you know, it, right. and, and it's just she's always yep. a day late and a dollar short every yeah. single time. Yeah. So to put her in perspective, she's the Navy's third aircraft carrier. She was actually laid down before Lex, but Lex was commissioned first, so CV2, CV3, that da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, she is huge, man. She's eight hundred and eighty yeah. feet long, yeah, massive, just big by today's standards, yeah, yeah. um, she had sixteen boilers that fed four turbine generators spun eight electric motors that produced over two thousand horsepower, so she could cook, and she could make over thirty actually. knots, yeah, yeah, she no, could move
1: yeah they're they're both big, fast ships. um, mm-hmm. I forget which one of the two of those there was some wasn't there an episode uh Sometime in the 30s, that uh, there had been a, I can't remember what was going on, but one of the West Coast cities lost power and they sent one of these two ships. Yeah. And they picked Tacoma. Tacoma. That's right. Uh, And it was Lexington. It was Lexington, right. And basically, you know, put this turbo electric ship and kind of plugged it into the power grid and it ran Tacoma's electrical grid for a while. You have a friend behind you, I see.
0: I do, yes. My dog is here. Uh, Gunther, the German Shepherd, is standing right here. My man, decided Gunther. To, <laughs> decided to bring him to work today.
1: Excellent. <laughs> and, yes, excellent.
0: You know, so Halsey has uh, a, a bloodline with Saratoga, shall we say. In 1935, from 1935 to 1937, then Captain William Halsey was skipper of USS Saratoga. So Sarah has a very long and storied history within the United States Navy, until world war Two, frankly and she just right.
1: she yeah just never got a, the, as
0: you said star crossed
1: yeah. yeah just never got the opportunity yeah she and lexington are really the two flight decks upon which the u.s navy built all of its carrier doctrine pre-war uh and they're sort of the, the analogs to kaga and akagi it's those two flight decks for the japanese that are and they're of similar ages and similar lineages akagi was a a converted battle cruiser just like lexington and saratoga are so Mm -hmm.
0: so because of sarah's star crossed war career to this point she had earned a couple of derogatory nicknames one of which was the reluctant dragon which is frankly unfair (laughs) (laughs) that's really uncool, (laughs) right it really is and the sarah maru Uh, by most accounts too she was not a happy ship i knew a couple of guys who flew from her flight deck uh, that had crossed deck from Enterprise specifically, and flown off of Saratoga after Guad or during Guadalcanal, and and they hated the damn thing. You, you know, it was a uh, they could, they they called it a scow. You know, and it had slow elevators. Yeah, the ship could the ship could move, but the but elevators. Everything weren't. inside. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, and to that point, I I have I have heard the same things that that Saratoga's approach to doing deck operations was very different than. You know, the Yorktown and certainly the Essex class carriers, um, because the elevators were so slow, you ended up having to do a lot of your stuff like right up on the flight deck. You know, that once the plane was on the flight deck, it ain't leaving, you know, until it's we're going to gas it up there. We're going to bomb it up up there and, and then get it off because, yeah, the the elevator cycles were just so miserable on the damn thing that you, you just you couldn't do it any other way.
0: Right, exactly. And it was, it was not, it was not a post that people want. It was not a ship that people wanted to be posted to. Yeah. Just put it that way. Yeah on july 26 1943 saratoga and the rest of task force 36 soon to be reclassified as task force 38 they get a new commander you talked about lexington this guy is rear admiral ted sherman ted sherman of course was former skipper of uss lexington at coral sea right so sherman is known to be a very aggressive commander he's known to be a risk taker he's known to be as my friend, Jig Dog Ramage, called a fire eater. He's a guy that is going to get in there and just make things happen. Right. So for all the time that Sarah's spending in port, Sherman comes aboard and the people in the know know who Sherman is. And they're like, mm, maybe things are going to turn around and we're going to actually see some action because this dude doesn't mess around. And they're not putting him here just to put him here. They're putting him here for a reason. Right. That that is exactly what happens here. So not long after that, um, Sarah receives a new air group, Air Group 12, under the command of Commander Howard Caldwell. We'll hear about him in a minute. Uh, Caldwell's fighter squadron flew the brand new F6F Hellcat. And by brand new, I mean brand new. I mean, it was one of the first air groups to be equipped, not the first, but one of the first to be equipped with the new hot fighter. let's talk about USS Princeton John this is one of your your favorite old gals here
1: I just you know and, and and it goes back to the fact that uh there was a book by Edwin P Hoyt called Death of the Princeton that i read as a as a school kid you know i was probably 12 or 13 when i read this thing and and i read it probably 12 or 13 times as one does when one is that age um I love all the independence class light carriers. I just think that they were, yeah, they didn't carry the, the biggest air groups. You're talking, you know, 40 to 45 aircraft on these things. But they were, they were fast, handy ships, um, mm-hmm. you know, capable. It's basically we had taken a, a group of light cruisers and decided to convert them into light carriers. And so the analog here from the Japanese standpoint, these are kind of bigger cousins of carriers like Shoho. Uh, or zuiho um shoho and zuiho both i think were extremely useful vessels even though they were conversions from seaplane carriers um fast handy mm-hmm. uh good ships and the independence carriers are are the same breed of cat they can keep up with a fast carrier task force they have a big enough air group to be interesting and to be able to do interesting things and so the fact that these that these nine ships kind of come into the mix at the same time that that some of the the newer Essex class, particularly as you mentioned, Essex and Bunker Hill are really the first two that are that are in the mix in a serious way, they come in at the same time that those new Essex class carriers do. And some of them, you know, put together a pretty credible reputation as warships, and, and Princeton is one of them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's that's a beautiful point. And that, you know, when you think of the fast carrier force, the the big blue fleet that roams across the Pacific and just crushes everything in its way, you think of the Essex class carriers, you think of Enterprise because she was with them, too. You don't think of the light carriers, the Princeton class, but they were there because They they could clip along at over 30 knots. They could keep up with these big girls. And they did play a vital part. One of the part one of the more interesting parts and vital parts, at least in the forms of the Marine Corps, is concerned, is that a lot of these escort carriers, light carriers, performed a lot of close air support as the war started to drag on. Right. So you see a lot of these carriers perform a lot of, you know, they're involved in a lot of amphibious operations. They're detached from the fast carrier task force and they're sent to go assist. And then they rejoin the carrier, to the fast carrier. So, I mean, these things are utilitarian, you know, to say yeah, the least.
1: Absolutely. Now, if you if we fast forward to the Battle of Philippine Sea, and if you look at the composition of the four carrier task forces that are going to be involved in that battle, every one of them is composed of usually three ships, sometimes four. And there will always be a mix of, you know, one or two independents and an Essex or two Essexes and an independence um, again the fact that they had the horsepower and the speed to keep up with the fast battleships and the other fast carriers made them incredibly useful vessels
0: the only difference aside from size obviously with the uh, fleet carriers is the com- the composition of their air groups yeah. because of their size uh, they couldn't carry the whole gamut of fighters, dive bombers, torpedo planes. They generally carry just Avengers and F-6F. Some escort carriers later on in the world carry the FM-2 Wildcat, which was a souped-up F-4F. Regardless, they're only going to carry fighters, and they're going to carry Avengers, which are both handy aircraft to have when you're plopping along through Japanese held islands that's aside from that and the size, that's really the only difference in the two classifications of ships because they both play these vital roles throughout the
1: world. Yeah. yeah one of the things that you see with, with, with a big fleet carrier is you get certain scale economies that, you know, because I can put a hundred aircraft on this thing, I can, I have the real estate on the deck and within the hangars to actually devote to three separate communities, if you will torpedo planes, mm-hmm. dive bombers, and fighters. In a smaller carrier like like uh, Independence class, you you don't have those scale economies. And so you have to focus on one or two things that you can do reasonably well. And in the case of these vessels, uh, yeah, it's it's mostly fighters.
0: Yep. So Allied aerial reconnaissance of the area around Raval was hit or miss at this point. Not to say that it was bad, not to say that it was good. Some days it was good, some days it was bad, just depending on who was flying and the weather. Um, Good luck at this point was often not on the Allied side when it came in terms of spotting stuff. It's just the way the fortune, the fog of war, the fortunes of war, as they say. However, on November the 3rd, a B-24 Liberator piloted by a gentleman named Lieutenant Robert Silvernail (laughs) spotted Admiral Curita's cruiser force inbound for a ball as the force neared St. George Channel. Curita's force at once detected Silvernail's lumbering B 24 Liberator up at altitude and started popping shots off at it, sending scout planes to go shoot it down. But Silvernail kept bobbing in and out of clouds and hung with Curita's force for about two hours, I, I believe it was. Well so, I mean, he's just hanging there. Yeah, he's yeah. hanging there like a fly, just yeah. hanging out. Silvernail sends a report. In of this sighting of Admiral Curita's cru- cruiser force that Koga sends down there. And this sends shock waves through Admiral William F. Halsey. Yeah, He literally said at one point, quote, this was the most desperate emergency confronted me in my entire time as so pack unquote. And that is a statement and a half.
1: Think about that. Yeah. The, yeah. the fact that you know we've we've gone through the episodes around Guadalcanal, and we know how harrowing, uh, you know, particularly the middle of November at Guadalcanal yeah. was, you know that we've gotten down to the point where we're going to commit our last two fast battleships to go down and fight a surface action in a bathtub. You know, and this particular instance where he's now facing down the barrel of of seven modern Japanese heavy cruisers, he ranks as higher on the stressometer o uh, than that particular affair. That's, yeah, that really is saying something.
0: And, and when you think about it, that that's, again, that's a beautiful point because you got to think, you know, we always talk about Guadalcanal and, you know, the commitment of of Washington and Sodak to that fight was, A, ballsy, and B, you know, I mean, he is pressed against the wall, yet this is making him sweat bullets more than that. That is saying something about, A, Halsey and his perception of the Japanese, B, the Allied situation at the time, which we just said, is bereft of any kind of serious surface forces to fight the Japanese that are coming down here. Right. So, to that end, Halsey knows that if the Japanese get into Rabaul and refuel and come out, they are going to just... Clean house Black. off the shores of Bougainville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to just blow anything away. You know, he's also not stupid that he knows a Japanese counter landing is going to be in the offset once these cruisers come in there and just waylay anything offshore. So he knows that he's got to do something to stop this force from coming here. And as we already said, he doesn't have anything with really to do that. And the Army Air Forces can go over there and maybe raid Rabaul, but. We've, we yeah. already know that high-altitude strategic straight-level bombing doesn't hit ships very often.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you could hope to, to pull off a sort of a repeat of Bismarck Sea and send your, your, um, your B-25 Strafers into that harbor. But given that threat environment uh, and the amount of anti-aircraft weapons that are lining that harbor, that is an extremely difficult uh, proposition is, is kind of yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah.
0: And, and not just the harbor, but the anti aircraft weapons on the ships themselves.
1: So, right. I mean, yeah, it's a lot yeah. of lead going to be coming up in the air. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, it, it was one thing to pick on uh, a, a convoy in the open ocean that was guarded by eight destroyers. It's an entirely different thing to go after a powerful enemy naval force inside a heavily protected anchorage.
0: Mm, yeah. <laughs> Two totally different situations.
1: Different
0: sir. Animals, yeah. So Halsey's operations officer, a gentleman we've never talked about here before, but this guy was friggin' brilliant, named Captain Harry Thurber. Thurber presented the Admiral with an alternative. He says, OK, look, I know we don't have anything to go in there and basically withstand this force if it comes at us. However, what you do have, Admiral, Are two aircraft carriers, Saratoga and Princeton, and they will be, if we tell them now, they will be within strike range, hopefully before these cruisers leave Simpson Harbor. So Thurber presumed that the Japanese would enter Simpson Harbor just before or shortly after dawn, refuel, and get underway for the beaches that very afternoon. The time to strike was just after dawn, and hopefully the aircraft would catch the cruisers in port, refueling, and hopefully at ease. Great plan. Yeah. But it's like down to the minute here. Presented with Thurber's plan, Halsey studied it briefly, considered the fact that his only son, and this, I don't care who you are, Admiral or not, this plays a role in your decision making no matter what. His only son, Bill Halsey Jr. is aboard the USS Saratoga. He looked at Thurber and replied in typical Halsey fashion, quote, let her go, unquote.
1: Gotta do what you gotta do. Uh, And again- Yeah, you do this is a guy who has never been shy about accepting the odds if if that's what needs to happen in order to uh, to make the larger operation come to fruition he knows that it's his job to protect that beachhead off of bougainville and he's got to do whatever he can to forestall this blow and so if, if these are the only assets i've got in the neighborhood Let's put together some sort of an operational plan to get them in a, a position where they can hit the enemy before they come and hit us. Ballsy. Yeah. And
0: ballsy halsey. But but and yeah. you know, we can't you can't make light of the decision, you know, that oh, he's just sending these carriers out there. Think about this for a second. I want the viewers and listeners to think about this for a second. This is it. This is all he has are these two ships. Well. Yeah, their escorts, blah. But he. this is really his only offensive striking power, Sarah and Princeton, and that is it. And he is not you know, in the dark as to the Japanese are more than likely going to send a counter-strike out there. And they very likely could catch both, one or both, and at the very least damage, if not sink these vessels because of the sheer amount of air power that is on and around Rabaul. So yeah. this is not an easy decision he makes here.
1: Yeah, Although, and this actually brings up though uh, a point of innovation on this operational plan is that one of the one of the twists that they put into this is that okay, we're going to use our carriers to deliver the strike against Rabaul, but we're going to use our own air-based assets, fighters, further down the Solomon's chain to put air cover over these two carriers. Mm -hmm. Ah, uh, to protect them so that they can devote both of their air groups strictly to attack missions uh, aimed at Rabaul, and so that's that I think is a key innovation, and and probably one that that helps even the odds a little bit as far as Halsey is concerned.
0: And it's not just it's not just land-based aircraft. It's or it is land-based aircraft, but it's not just your standard land-based aircraft. And one of the squadrons that's orbiting as combat air patrol over the carriers as we're going to see in just a few minutes is VF17 the Jolly Rogers. This mm-hmm. is a navy fighter squadron. They're flying yeah. F4U Corsairs. They have to reinstall their tail hooks so they can land on these carriers. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so they had their tail hooks removed because it's like what the hell do you need a tail hook for when yeah. you're on an island? Right. right. They they have their ground crew reinstall their hooks so if they have to land and refuel, which they, they do. They can. And they're qualified carrier aviators. It's it's sure. brilliant, really, when that you think about it, that he's, yeah, that Halsey specifically says, I want the F-17 to right. be combat air patrol. So if they got to land, they got a place to land.
1: Right, right.
0: It's, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. It really is. So he sends, so um, Sarah and Princeton had just finished refueling. When they get word, when Sherman gets the word to move on after move on or after the uh, November 4th, his orders to to um, uh, oh God damn uh, Sherman are mm. vintage Halsey. And again, I'm going to read this verbatim, quote, move task force 38 at all possible speed to a position south of Bougainville, where Saratoga and Princeton will launch a strike against for ball at first light. Priority targets are cruisers, destroyers, second period, unquote. That's it. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you want to you want your subordinate commanders to have as much room to exercise their personal initiative as possible. He's made his intentions clear here. You know what you're supposed to do. Yikes. Make yeah, it that, happen, man. You got to You got to wonder the reaction of Sherman on on the bridge of Saratoga when he gets, you know, gets that particular order. <laughs> Is it, say what? <laughs> where, yeah. where are we going again? Yeah. Okay.
0: Ex- exactly. Exactly. So after working out the logistics, uh, Sherman and his staff, or Sherman orders all ships all ahead flank. And proceeded to pound out 500 miles in 15 hours at 27 knots. So, again, we talked about Saratoga and being able to haul ass. Yeah. Princeton can keep up with her. At one point, Saratoga had to slow down because she was outrunning her destroyer screen.
1: Yeah. Which big carriers I mean- can do and can still do. You know, you. Yeah. You you talk to any um, modern sailor, and they'll tell you the fastest thing on the ocean is a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. They can outrun anything. They're they're just tremendously fast, and because they're so large, they have the seakeeping keeping capabilities uh, to just plow through seas that a smaller escort has real problems with.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening here. Saratoga is just booking going through that water. She's showing she's showing the U.S. Navy. How fast she can actually move here. She is just getting down. So you got to feel for the squadron COs and the CAG on both ships here because these guys had no expectations that they were going to perform an operation within 24 hours, much less a like, ball for Christ's right.
1: sakes. Yeah. And so it's important to to recognize there that yeah again much like truck Rabal has an outsized evil reputation within the U.S. Navy at this point everybody knows that this is you're really going into the bear cave uh, if you were going to you know pull off a raid against this particular uh, complex of bases
0: yeah so needless to say few people slept. That night, you know, it's cer- certainly not the air crews, I would venture to say. Yeah. Uh, so Sher- Sherman gets on the PA on Saratoga and he says these words very exactly, quote, boys, we are hitting Rabal tomorrow morning. This is a hell of a tough assignment. You have damn little
1: time. God bless you, boys, <laughs> quote. You have damn little time. Yeah. Those, <laughs> those are happy words to go to sleep by now, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. spending your last. The, your last night on earth is going to be tonight. You know, yeah.
0: It's,
1: yeah. I don't know that I would. Not the most chosen. inspiring speech. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh well.
0: But he's calling a spade a spade. You know. I mean, right. he's he's saying, "Hey, look, this is this is the cards we have been dealt, and and we're going to execute this mission. It is going to suck, but yeah. we're going to get it done, and you guys are going to be the one to do it. So you know, sleep well, boys, and we'll see you yeah. in the morning.
1: Right. Steak and eggs for everybody. Oh, you know it. Yeah.
0: So they are flying down there all night long. No, no, flying. The ships are are steaming like mad all night long. Uh the, the air crews and the airedales are working all night to prep the birds. They're reef they're fueling them, they're arming them, they're getting them ready to go. There's there's very little uh maps that the Navy has that these carrier pilots have for a ball. So so they're actually kind of doing this kind of half-assed, frankly, they're trying to work out the logistics of this strike. Um, By 0700, the next morning, Saratoga and Princeton had reached what they called a desirable launch location. Right on schedule, Captain Harry Thurber was 100% right. Right on schedule, Curita's cruiser force slid into Simpson Harbor at dawn on November the 5th, Cruisers dropped anchor and began refuel jamming Simpson Harbor with with seven cruisers and some 40-odd auxiliary ships. That's not all that was with them, but that was all that was in the harbor.
1: Yeah, and there's always ships here, as you mentioned previously. Yeah, this is a very busy harbor.
0: Mm -hmm. So, John, you know, the Japanese actually spot Sherman's people coming in, don't they?
1: Uh, I believe that is correct, yeah, as a matter of fact. Um, But... But they misidentify her, uh, misidentify him, and don't believe that it's actually a carrier aviation force. They think it's a surface action group or some sort of a mixed amphibious group. And so here is a missed opportunity uh, on the part of the Japanese. They could have been a little more prepared for this raid than they actually were. But uh, again, you, we've seen this all through the Solomon's campaign. You know, again, if we go back to the Battle of Savo Island and the initial identification of Makawa's cruiser force coming down the slot and, right. oh, yeah, it's got seaplane tenders in it, so it can't possibly be a surface action group and we don't have to worry about it. Same thing here, you know, the Japanese are saying, oh, well, you know, it doesn't have any carriers, so it can't really do anything to us now, can it? Uh, and the result is that their air defenses are not at the level of alertness that they should be
0: exactly, so beginning at zero seven, American aircraft launched and formed up Saratoga launches a full deck load seven, seventy one aircraft a mixed bag of of uh, a mixed bag of SPDs, t b s and f success She literally sends if if the if it has wings and the engine starts, this is going up in the air, yeah, Princeton is no different. she sends literally. Every single thing that can start is in the air. And this is a really cool little fact that I found when I was digging through uh, prepping for this episode. So Princeton's strike was led by VF twenty three. This is her composite air group, her fighter group, her fighter squadrons. VF twenty three. It's, uh, its commanding officer is a guy named Lieutenant Commander Henry Miller. In nineteen forty two, Hank Miller, who had been he had been temporarily assigned to Eglin Field. He was the guy that trained the Doolittle Raiders how to take off of a carrier deck. That's cool. Which is kind of cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's, yeah. it's totally cool. So this is his first real introduction in the combat. Obviously, he had a heavy hand in the Doolittle Raid in 1942. And uh, this is a, an interesting little tidbit, little side note that he's right. the guy that's leading Princeton's fighters into the carrier strike on Rabaul. Right. So Thurber's plan that we talked about before, it works Perfectly. The American strikers pop up over Simpson Harbor as the six cruisers are moored peacefully for the day. These guys are totally not expecting any kind of American air raid. Yep. They're refueling, they're eating chow. They're breakfast. you know,
1: yep. yeah, doing it's, whatever it's, they're doing. Yeah, it's kind of Pearl Harbor and reverse in a sense. You know, you've got a, a fleet that Should be at a little more of a wartime footing, but they figure they're safe inside this harbor. It's been a a bastion for them throughout the war. And yeah, they are not at action stations when, you know, Merry Christmas, here comes the strike force right over the harbor.
0: Right. So overall strike commander for both groups, Sarah and Princeton is the gentleman that we mentioned before. This is CAG. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, commander Howard H. Caldwell from Saratoga. He's aloft in a TBF Avenger with, uh, several crewmen inside, uh, orbiting at 10,000 feet above the harbor. Uh, he's observing and in radio instructions to the flock below. Inside his Avenger were the radioman, the gunner and a photographer's mate named Paul Barnett. And Barnett is. An interesting dude now he was not a rated aviation radio man a a, radio man gunner nothing like that he was a photographer's mate aboard saratoga he literally begged caldwell to go on this mission convincing caldwell he said look he says if you take me with you a i want to see some combat b I will take photographs of, of this event that will, A, be for history, but, B, more importantly, will be used for intel. And I've got the camera equipment and the skills to do so. Reluctantly, Caldwell's like, all right, fine. Yeah. So m- most of the photographs we see of this event were taken by this
1: guy, Barnett. Right, and there are some spectacular photos out of yeah. this, right? Yeah, it's-, it's
0: They really are. Yeah. They really are. So as the strike appears over the harbor, Japanese fighters, needless to say, scramble. You know they they get very little warning at all uh, that that American aircraft are inbound, and when they do give warning, know. They're-
1: I think they had a radio a radar set there, and uh, I I'm remiss in not having gone back and read Bruce Gamble's uh, book on that because um, he, he's Bruce Gamble just for the sake of our readers is really the mm-hmm. guy when it comes to Rabal and the history. Uh, of this particular campaign. And I would highly recommend any of his books to any of our listeners. He's also a, just a great human being. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Japanese do manage to get aircraft up in the air and manage to get them up to altitude sufficient that they would have been able to ambush this force. But in a in a twist of events that that we don't really understand, they don't come down on top of our attack force. Even though they have seventy planes up in the air, which is a big cap.
0: Yeah, and that's that's what I was going to say. Is that you know they get numbers vary, but like the average number is about seventy aircraft that they get up and that's a hell of a lot of damn fighters, Mm -hmm. and they just hang out. Yeah, they're up at altitude. They're above the American aircraft. They have the altitude advantage, and they're just kind of
1: yeah, it's watching it go down. Yeah. And you got to wonder, you know, did they not want to be down inside the envelope of their own AAA weapons, perhaps? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And bad me, I should know. Right.
0: <laughs> so, well, but I mean, I don't think anybody knows. That's the thing is, yeah. to your point, Bruce Gamble's book, his trilogy, of which I have over my left shoulder here, I searched through there and Gamble doesn't have an answer. Like, he doesn't. He's like, <laughs> you know, I have no idea. <laughs>
1: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and if the guy who wrote the trilogy that. on reball yeah, yeah exactly had, don't. know, then okay i'm not going to feel that bad and I, I, probably the answer is somewhere in the senshi socio series and we just haven't translated it yet so there you go i don't, I don't know anyway so
0: as the american formation neared their rollout altitudes so you got to remember there's there's fighters sbds and avengers at that boom, 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 at that stair step, the AAA opens up. And this is, by all accounts, and that's just shore batteries, the anti-aircraft weaponry on the cruisers, they're starting to they are starting to come to life. Yeah. Um, this is a tremendous amount of anti-aircraft fire that is being thrown up. I mean, again, I liken this to a European city, maybe not to yeah. the level of Berlin or Schweinfurt, but yeah. there's a lot of friggin' anti-aircraft that's being thrown up here.
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah, this is, this is not a healthy environment to be flying into, because, again, there's, there's a lot of automatic weapons here. And if you're coming down to altitude, it's, it's going to be problematic. Furthermore, by this point in the war, I mean, Japanese anti-aircraft for their ships is never anything to write home about. But one of the interesting additions that this cruiser force gives them, as I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, um, each one of these ships, except Chikuma, carries eight five-inch uh AA guns. And so just the fact that they're in this harbor adds an additional nearly 55-inch ACAC weapons and all of the 25 millimeter automatics that they have on these ships. Yeah, they uh the the Japanese themselves are are freaking out at this point they're trying to raise steam Mm -hmm. which is a very lengthy process and any sort of a steam driven warship it's not like a gas turbine where you can just say uh we need to go you know that's Mm -hmm. not going to happen but the volume of anti-aircraft fire that they can add to Rabal's organic defenses is significant
0: Mm -hmm. that's a lot of lead and 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 the americans lose two fighters almost instantly as soon as the AA pops up, boom, fighters are going down and they're starting to go down with rapidity. We're starting to lose more and more the longer the aircraft are hanging up in the air. Sure. So at this point in the war, the SBD is still our main dive bomber. The SB2C, the Hell Diver, the beast, as they call it, you're going to hear about that in a minute. It's starting to come into the fleet, but the Dauntless is still the, the hammer. You know, she's still the hammer. And this attack is no different. The SBDs of VB12 roll over and begin their drops from about 10,000 feet, which is not exceptionally high for a Dauntless, but it's high enough for a dive bomber. Uh, Saratoga's SBDs roll in in groups of two and three. And true to the orders given to Sherman by Halsey, the the dive bombers literally split up and there's two or three per cruiser. And they're attacking the cruisers individually in groups of twos and threes. The AA was thick and was walking into the SPDs as they're making their dives. As rear seat gunner Miles James relays to his pilot as he rides backwards. He says, quote, they're on our left now, now they're on our right. Uh, Hell, I give up, they're all around us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that said, uh, a dive bomber in its dive is an incredibly difficult target to hit. The vertical rate changes just play hell with any sort of uh, fire control computer. Uh, even though the the Japanese Type 94 computer on, on all of these cruisers, for instance, is one of the better anti-aircraft fire control systems of the war, it's it's better than anything the British have got. Um, but against a dive bomber, it is very very difficult to hit that plane because of the the vertical rate changes. Uh, really, uh, automatic weapons become the better weapon to go after a dive bomber and just try to spray down the target and and get it because you're gonna have real problems hitting it with anything uh like a five inch Mm -hmm.
0: and that's that's kind of what happens here because the dauntless the dauntlesses are actually pretty accurate you know you've talked about you know the 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 hit ratio for uh, yeah it's it's piss poor.
1: yeah but with a dive bomber, you know, you 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 can typically get about one hit in six, which uh, doesn't sound great. But if you got a lot of dive bombers, it'll get the job done. That's that's historically what we got at Midway, and you know that won the battle.
0: And and that's exactly what happens here. So uh, on the, the they're as I said, they're pretty accurate on these attacks on these stationary targets. Cruiser Maya. Is smacked by a thousand-pound bomb on her scout plane deck. This starts a tremendous fire that spread quickly to her engine room, causing over 130 casualties. Yeah. Um, is it Takeo or Takao?
1: Takao. Yeah. Takao.
0: She she's also hit on her main deck, just starboard of her number two tor- turret. Seconds later, she's hit again on another turret. Atago, who is still refueling was splattered with shrapnel from three 1000 pounders that killed the captain on the bridge the man standing there and he's sliced in half by shrapnel from some, right. one of these thousand pounders yeah Mog- mogami who is a veteran cruiser yes she's probably hit the hardest though here right john i mean she takes yeah it no
1: she gets she gets hit by yeah one that goes uh right between her forward turrets and just basically flattens uh the the area between those turrets does not uh, get into her magazines, but the fires that that are kicked up start to threaten the magazines, and so yeah, she's she's definitely in a world of hurt here too. And this, yeah, you say she's a veteran cruiser. This is not her, this is not her first uh, time at the races when it comes to being under dive bomber attack. Uh, she's weathered this sort of thing before and knows just how incredibly unpleasant it is.
0: Mm-hmm. She um she she's flooded down by her bowels and, and her decks are damn near a wash, is only like seven feet above the waterline when she's plumped down to flood her forward magazine. Yeah,
1: yeah forward she's trimmed down. Yep.
0: Yeah. So um, the, the dive bombers of VB twelve do their job. They come in there, and this is a brand new unit. Keep this in mind. These aren't, you know, the veterans of Scouting Six at Midway. Right. Uh, or even or or or, or Eastern Solomons or Santa Cruz, these guys are green as grass, and they come in there and they waylay these cruisers, man. Oh. Uh, dropping 22 bombs total, the SBDs from Saratoga heavily damaged five of the six cruisers in port with several near misses. Several
1: yeah, what's other the ships total, were hit. the total hit count there? I'm just, I'm just again, trying to do the, the math in my head, but yeah, well, it helps to have stationary <laughs> targets, but yeah, they got better than one in six out of this for sure. Anyway.
0: I'm looking I'm saying uh, several so it, just the heavy cruisers it looks like they took about 7 hits total
1: that was what I was going to guess 6 or 7 so yeah they're doing yeah you know, they're doing one and four or better than that so you know you're yeah. not even-
0: well that's not mm-hmm. star, yeah that's that's yeah. not even all yeah so yeah. two light right. cruisers and two destroyers were also hit too, by bombs cool. so I mean these guys are friggin' accurate to your point these ships aren't moving but who cares you know their job is to go in there and hit these things and that's exactly what they do yeah um god help the american torpedoes you know just when we think that things are starting to come to the surface no pun intended here that we're actually getting torpedoes that start to work and we are on destroyers for the most part yeah the TBFs that are coming in here from both princeton and sarah they perform well. They make their runs. They do their thing. They drop their fish. Nothing duds. happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If they hit the target, which is a right. big if, they, they're 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 duds. So it's they're. God bless their sacrifice. Honest to Christ. Right. So the cap that we were talking about, they were orbiting above the attackers and failed to attack. Well, they attack now. So in my notes, I say egress under duress. So when these fighters are when the fighters, when the Americans are getting out of Dodge, the Japanese fighters come down and they put a hurting on our people when they're getting out of there. Right.
1: Yeah, correct.
0: So. The sky is quickly a beehive of activity, and remember what I said—that the, the fighters that are coming in here, American fighters, these are F six F. So these ain't the old Wildcats. These are these are going to be hot new fighter. Uh, they do take some losses, but they do inflict some punishment on the Japanese. Doolittle Raider trainer Hank Miller is credited with job, dropping two of the Japanese fighters in the, on the way out. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named John Magda from VF twelve. He scores the highest of the day. This guy is a bad dude right here. On the, Seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay it on you. On the way out, Magna shoots down a zero that pulled directly in front of him. He dropped another one that appeared just to his right, pulling in behind it, pouring 50 caliber into the Japanese as the Japanese dove away on fire. A third zero was blown out of the air when Magna slid in behind the Japanese as the enemy fighter drew a bead on a retiring SBD. The zero pulled off the SBD. Magda stayed with him and watched him crash into the water. A fourth zero shot from the tail of another Dauntless, and this zero simply just blew up in his face. This made four for Magda in one day. While four in one day is an accomplishment for anybody, yeah, it is, it is estimated that he shot these four down in less than five minutes.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a hot day at the stick. So
0: Yeah. He's, well, he's and- getting his pay.
1: Gives you yeah, and also gives you a, a sense for uh just the better performance of this particular airplane. You know, this is honestly one of sort of the, the combat debuts of of the Hellcat. And um the, you know <laughs> the Navy flyers who were flying this thing, some of whom certainly came up through Wildcats, are extremely impressed with this particular plane. Yeah, it may look kind of like a wildcat, but it's a completely different beast under the hood. Because it's got that you know two thousand horsepower Pratt and Whitney um, in there. This is this is a very very hot airplane.
0: It's it's a coin flip in my opinion between it and the Corsair as being the finest propeller driven aircraft of of the Pacific Theater. I, I I'm
1: I'm a, I'm a Corsair guy all the way. I am too. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because it's so cool looking. How can you not? It is- and, it, and it's 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 it is a hotter fighter than uh, than the F the F six, but from a utilitarian standpoint, uh, which was the better overall carrier fighter, I think you have to give the nod to the Hellcat. It was easier to fly, it was easier to land, it was a bigger plane, so it could take a little bit more punishment than a Corsair could. Um, yeah, it's it's just a fine fighter.
0: Yeah, you know, you called you. You mentioned Bruce Gamble. He called it the bent wing hot rod, talking about the Corsair.
1: The Corsair, yeah, I know. I love that. Yeah. Point. Don't get me wrong. I Absolutely, just, hell yeah.
0: yeah. So the guy we'd mentioned before, who the overall strike leader, uh, Howard Caldwell, Commander Caldwell, he's still orbiting above as his fighters, as his. I keep saying fighters, as his aircraft are getting the hell out of there. He's still orbiting above. His photographer's mate is snapping images of which some of which you're going to see in this video yeah it doesn't take the japanese long to look up and go hey hey
1: <laughs> yeah there's, there's somebody out there yeah right and they come after him, and yeah. yeah the results are alarming uh shades here of what ended up happening to bert Ernest's tbf mm-hmm. during the battle of midway uh it's a good thing that the TB- tbf is a very beefy robust airplane because uh, they just fill Caldwell's plane full of holes uh, yeah. and turned into veritable Swiss cheese. And fortunately, in the course of doing that, they kill uh, Barnett, the photographer, um, yeah. you know, nail him with a machine gun.
0: It's it's pretty grisly. And, you know, again, reading this out of Gamble's book, he... he- He says that um, the Saturday Evening Post at the time, this is reporting after, obviously, after the raid. Saturday Evening Post was one of the more family-friendly magazines of of the era. Uh, They generally didn't go into a lot of gory detail. However, on this particular episode, they do. And they paid attention to this particular airplane and this particular crew. Um, Caldwell's plane was attacked by eight Japanese fighters. And he had an escort of two F-6Fs. And the two F-6Fs met the threat. But there were eight. Against two, yeah. and they just, they wound up chasing these guys off. The two gunners in the, in the, in the uh, Avenger are seriously wounded. They, neither of them die, but they're seriously wounded. Barnett, however, is the one that receives the brunt of it, as you were saying. A Japanese fighter slides in behind Caldwell and opens fire. Japanese fire struck the photographer's mate Barnett in the back of the head. Uh, the 7-7 blew the back of Barnett's head off, and he fell forward over his camera, dead. And this is all from the Saturday Evening Post. By the way, the family friendly news uh, uh, magazine, the blood poured out of Barnett all over Caldwell, pouring onto his head and into his goggles, forcing Caldwell to remove his goggles so he could see this is ugly. You know, it's hideous. And the thing is, too, you know, you you think about these kind of gory aspects in ground warfare because they happen all the time. You don't necessarily think about it in aerial combat, but yeah you know i mean human bodies don't react well to bullets right and 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 this is certainly one of those occasions so you know while the Flyboys had their share of glory they had their fair share of gore as well and this is one of those cases yeah for sure so out of ammo apparently the zero that that kills barnett uh pulls up alongside a caldwell and just peels off and goes away uh Caldwell winds up landing back on uh, the carrier. He has no flaps, no ailerons, no radio, and only one wheel down. Yet he still executes a perfect three-wire landing how on U.S. I do that flaps
1: <laughs> I Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, um, I clearly Caldwell knew how to fly. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's impressive. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that is seriously impressive. The thing had over like 110 uh, holes in it. I mean, it was Swiss cheese. It really was. Yeah,
1: just like Burner in this plane as well. And again, uh, a testament to the Grumman Ironworks uh, that cranks these aircraft out, you know, that they could, you know, you you think about what happens if you pump 110 machine gun holes into a Japanese Zero. That thing is shot down five times over. (laughs) I mean, it's just, there's no way that it gets home. but, yeah, these, no. these were big, beefy planes, and they could take a lot of punishment.
0: Yeah, and this is a perfect example of that.
1: Yeah. So
0: Sherman and his flyboys had accomplished a major victory here. This Early is victory. nothing short of spectacular. It really yeah. is. They had achieved the surprise that they had wanted. They devastated the Japanese cruisers and the destroyers, which were actually secondary targets that they intended to hit. The neutralization of the cruisers by the carrier strike effectively eliminated the threat to the Bougainville beachhead. It didn't effectively eliminate it. It did eliminate it.
1: Right. Yeah, because basically all of these cruisers are going to have to be sent back to the shop at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, just in one blow, they completely took uh, Corita's force off the table.
0: Yeah, he didn't sink any, but you don't have to sink a ship to render it mission ineffective.
1: I was just going to say the word mission kill, that's that's what you wanted to do uh, in this case. Damage is as good as being sunk because if we can just get these things out of the neighborhood, You know, we're going to be able to invade successfully. We're going to have our own airfields and these things are never going to be able to come back and bother us again
0: and that's that's exactly what happens here this is halsey is over the moon when he hears about the results of the raid which are which by the way are confirmed later on when kenny's fifth air force actually does fly a mission over top of simpson harbor and photographs are taken of these heavily damaged ships he sends a message to sherman quote report of attack is real music to me when the saratoga is given a chance she is deadly Princeton too takes a deep initial bow in the South Pacific. May the Jap cripples permanently be buried in Davy Jones's locker. A funeral dirge has been sounded for Tojo's strongest South Pacific base. End quote. Again, vintage Bill Halsey.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's there's a reason that the newspaper men just loved him because he always yeah. had something pithy and pugnacious coming out of his mouth. I mean, yeah, he's just he's just a reporter's dream.
0: Great material here. So. This this raid emboldens Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, who had, again, admittedly withheld forces from Halsey to augment his Central Pacific thrust against the Gilberts, which we'll talk about in another episode. Yeah. He says, hey, Bill, you know, you and Sarah and Princeton did a really good job down there. How about we do it again? Right. Right he sends the two kit car- well two the two first carriers of this essex class USS essex cv9 and bunker hill 17 that reached the pacific and this is their not their debut cuz they actually do a couple little hit and runs here and there but this is their debut for major action here mm-hmm. and without getting into the weeds too much on essex class cuz we'll do that later on these are the big girls that that carry the hell, they're still in service in the nineteen some of them are still in the service in the nineteen eighties for crying out loud. This is the backbone of the United States Aircraft Carrier Task Forces from 1943 until, you know, forever damn near. Right. These are huge ships. Uh they're not as big as Sarah, but they're close, eight hundred and seventy-two feet long. Um, you know, I call them the best aircraft carriers of the war. You said Taiho might have something to say about that, but <laughs>
1: yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, you, you can make various arguments up and down. I, I would actually generally agree with you. There's there's always, of course, the ongoing debate between armored flight decks and unarmored flight decks. And, sure. and the Essex does not have an armored flight deck. And as will be demonstrated in some of the later episodes when you talk about the kamikaze threat, um, or mm-hmm you know uh, having an armored flight deck can be a very useful thing but the bottom line is that the u.s navy views its carriers as offensive assets and armored flight decks incur big penalties in terms of the size of the air group that i can carry and so they make the decision that they're gonna really focus on the offensive side of the uh, of the equation with the Essex class. And yeah, they're just fabulous ships for the kind mm-hmm. of war that we're going to be fighting for the remainder of this conflict. Big, fast, carry very large air groups, uh, in some cases up to uh, you know 110 planes and some typically around 100 is what they'll carry. Uh, absolutely festooned with anti-aircraft yeah. weapons um five inch 38 tons of bofers these are extremely formidable uh, characters from a defensive standpoint as well their
0: anti-aircraft suite would make a cruiser blush honestly
1: Uh, yeah no they're in the same league with a fast battleship i mean they carry a lot of boom boom and of course the fact that they have an organic air wing on them as well makes them extremely dangerous customers to, to come into contact with. And, and two, by this time in the war, our damage control is extremely good. Uh, If you look at the way that these ships are built from um, a firefighting standpoint, they have the ability to subdivide the hangars into multiple sections, each of which can be curtained off with uh, water curtains. They've got extensive foam systems, the whole schmear. Um, They're they're extremely battle-damage-resistant vessels. Uh, as yes. as the USS Franklin is going to demonstrate as Bunker Hill will demonstrate Hill, Jesus yeah anyway
0: yeah um, the, oh. these these are these are beasts man they they really are they're the, they're the cutting edge cutting yep. edge so Bunker Hill was one she was carrying she was one of the she was the newest carrier in the fleet at, at, that was deployed at this time she carries one of the newest aircraft in the navy's arsenal We mentioned it before the Curtis SB2C Helldiver the Helldiver Eventually becomes a very good aircraft. However, at this stage in her career, she was much like Saratoga was in that she was hated by the guys that flew the thing. They called it the beast. They called it the, um, there's a bunch bunch of different names. The most unforgiving nickname, which is my favorite, is SB2C. They called it the son of a bitch second class,
1: which is not a not a term of affection yeah Mm, (laughs) no no, not at all well it is interesting that a lot of these carriers you know bought tooth and nail to keep their dauntlesses on board them as long as they possibly could because a lot of the aviators have been hearing horror stories about the sb 2 c that just they just didn't want this plane
0: yeah uh, Lexington CV-16 and Enterprise CV-6 are the last two to give up their SPDs, yeah. and they're still flying them at Phil C in June of forty-four.
1: So. That's this correct, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So the second raid was nothing compared to the first, honestly. The opposition was relatively light, Japanese opposition, and the targets were not nearly as plentiful. Uh no heavy war – well, I shouldn't say no heavy warships. There weren't very many heavy warships in port. Uh, some of the light cruisers and destroyers were there were there as well as some transports. Despite the lack of ripe targets, the flyers attacked what they could and suffered through intense anti-aircraft fire. That, again, was exceedingly accurate. Uh, on the way out, just like the first time, Japanese fighters pounced. Uh, the melee spread from St. George Channel to Blanche Bay with fighters swarming all over the sky. That is a big area of sky yeah. yeah um vf9 hellcat driver harry mcwater claimed three zero shot down in a dogfight that rough that lasted roughly 10 minutes which is a long damn time for a dog fight
1: yeah you know,
0: most of these are seconds this is right. 10 minutes ish that's a hell of a long time um the Americans on the second raid sent 275 aircraft a ball. Again, to your point, the deck load strikes of the Essex-class carriers is mind-boggling.
1: Yeah, they can really send a lot of planes, for sure. Yeah, they can. Yeah, they yeah. can.
0: Only one destroyer was sunk, however, while a light cruiser and three destroyers suffered minor damage. So, uh, less yeah, than stellar not as- results.
1: Yeah, not, not in... Even in remotely, the same league in terms of war results, particularly because the first carrier raid had been so important in forestalling what was a dire threat to our beachhead um, at, at Bougainville. We're no longer in those sort of desperate straits. Um, one of the ships hit here, and, you know, just as an aside, was the the light cruiser Agano, which is one of the most modern light cruisers in in the japanese navy and she actually has a is a pretty ugly end. she's she's damaged here kind of badly limps back to truck is patched up uh in an emergency sort of way and gets underway to get back to japan for permanent repairs this is the middle of february and those of our listeners who are you know savvy about what's coming up here She gets sunk by a submarine uh, north of truck, and 500 and some survivors get plucked out of the water by various Japanese warships who turn around, boogie back to truck, just in time to be caught by Operation Hailstone, which is the major carrier raid against truck. And those ships, the rescue ships, end up getting sunk, and every man on Agano's crew is lost. So you know uh, the fact that she was damaged here in simpsons harbor really ends up putting uh, that's it is her death now that her death warrant gets signed here in the harbor
0: kind of seals her fate that that's horrific when you think literally there are no survivors none from a cruiser that's a lot of dudes
1: yeah she was a big ship so yeah
0: so the american reports from the second raid are nothing if not spectacular however the actual results are nowhere near uh american reports stated that flyers from the aircraft carriers down 37 enemy aircraft the japanese actually lose 11. uh japanese claimed 71 american shot down when as we know the americans only lose nine so it's a both sides this is an exaggeration fest of biblical proportions yeah and it's just it's it's very anticlimactic you know you send these two big old brand new shiny new toys down there to go get their teeth cut and while they do experience you know they see the elephant as i like to say they 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 see combat and they they do cut their teeth they don't cut their teeth in the way that i guarantee you admiral nimitz was hoping and expecting that they would yeah so one quick thing before we uh, adjourn here the japanese after the second carrier strike. And it's very clear to the Japanese that this is a carrier strike. The big blue United States Navy aircraft are very hard to miss. They yes. know where these are coming from. They are burning with desire to for revenge. The Japanese send out a pretty large counter strike against the American aircraft carriers, the two Essex class here that we're talking about. Not Sarah, well Sarah and Princeton are in this group, but the targets are going to be the Essex class carriers. Um, at 1,300 on the same day as the carrier raid, American radar screens picked up the flight of incoming enemy aircraft. Um, Combat Air Patrol of F-6S from VF-17. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Not VF-17 is Jolly Rogers. These are F-4Us from VF-17. My bad. And yeah. VF-33, these are F-6S, are vectored toward the threat. As the Japanese drew closer, and John, this is something I know you wanted to talk about. American Triple A. Opens up with a fury that the Japanese had never seen, and this includes Santa Cruz, had never seen anything like this before.
1: Yeah, we just unload on them. You know, we talked about during the Santa Cruz episode uh, just how powerful American anti aircraft had become, even by the time you get to October of 1942. By the time you're talking the end of 1943, it has metastasized again into even more lethality. Because among other things, we're starting to use the VT fuse on our five-inch weapons, which is increasing the lethality of that weapon by a factor of, depending on who reports you read between five and seven. Um, The beautiful thing about a VT fuse is all you have to do is just fire that thing and get it within the neighborhood of your target and it will take care of detonating and and hitting that plane. So it's a much more lethal shell. And uh, yeah, we're, we're at this point, I would say we're sort of, we've entered now what I would call late war US Navy AAA in that the the throwaway just the sheer number of weapons that are on our ships combined with the increased lethality of that five inch gun is just it's phenomenal and yeah these Mm -hmm. these japanese pilots have never seen anything like this and this is the threat environment that they're going to have to live in for the rest of the war
0: to to your point um the japanese send Oh, geez, Louise. Uh, I'm sorry. American Combat Air Patrol and the AAA, most of which were shot down by the AAA, um, knocked down 17 of the 23 attacking VALs. All of the incoming Kate torpedo bombers are shot down, every single one. Yeah. Only two Japanese fighters were shot down. But regardless, the enemy attack had been wiped out before it could do any damage at all to the two big carriers in the task group.
1: And so what you're seeing here is by the time you get to this point in the war, flying torpedo planes against enemy ships was always dangerous. By now, it's just it's suicide. You just can't do it. Conventional torpedo attacks will not work against an American task force. You just you're just going to be killed. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty frightening stuff.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just a harbinger of things to come for the Japanese when they when it comes to attacking a large, you know, Group of American warships. Yeah. Some, there's always going to be one or two that get through, and there are some that get relatively close to Bunker Hill. I think they splatter her flight deck with some shrapnel from one of the bombs, but hits are very hard to come by. This is not Hornet being attacked at Santa Cruz here anymore.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, it used to be that if you would see an incoming raid of, you know, 30 or 40 enemy aircraft, that's, that is really problematic. And you're likely going to take, you know, A number of hits from that we've got a similar size attack here and it just gets absolutely shellacked and does nothing Mm -hmm. so yeah
0: so the final results of these two raids the first raid was a massive success the second raid while not scoring heavily on ships in the harbor actually killed more japanese pilots than did the first raid. so Mm -hmm. when you combine the two events together as a whole um the combined fleet loses for a temporary time you know several heavy cruisers to heavy damage they lose a tremendous amount of still relatively experienced japanese carrier pilots yeah because a lot of these guys are carrier pilots
1: yeah And, and so for the sake of our of our audience here one of the things that admiral koga had been doing throughout this time period they're trying to rebuild their carrier air wings but at the same time, since Rabaul is so important, they've been shuttling some of these fighter pilots down to Rabaul to augment the air defenses around that very important base. The result of this is that a lot of those carrier pilots have been killed in defense of Rabal, which thereby sets back all of the efforts that Koga is trying to put together to rejuvenate these air wings. Uh, this is not going to stand them in good stead when we get into things like the Battle of Philippine Sea, which remember is only six months away.
0: Yeah. Of the fighters, uh half of the fighters at sends down are lost. 85% of the dive bombers at sends down are lost. 95% of the torpedo aircraft at Koga sends down are lost. Right. Um, this is a, a as you say it guts it guts yeah, the, the gut, Japanese.
1: Yeah, it's this is very, very bad news. From uh, again, from the standpoint of you're already trying to play catch up to the American pilot training programs, you can't afford to yeah. be frittering away carrier aviators, frankly, in the defense of a land base that should be able to take care of itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it and it it puts a serious dent in any plans going forward here. Yeah. So you know, the capture of Bougainville is successful, obviously. Uh, the unsuccessful Japanese Japanese attempt to destroy both the fleet offshore and minashore, as well as the two carrier raids on Rabaul forces Koga's hand. Never again would any major warships of any type ever enter Simpson Harbor again. So at this point, for all intents and purposes, the monster that is Rabaul, the monster in the closet, is has been vanquished. I mean, it is essentially neutralized as the vaunted port. That yeah. launched so much misery for the Americans and their allies from Guadalcanal to now.
1: It's yeah, it's no, dead. that's absolutely right. I mean, in a sense, you can see this as sort of the unintended uh, culmination of cartwheel. We've achieved the goal of cartwheel insofar as, as nullifying Rabal. It's never going to be captured because, again, just given the sheer size of the garrison there, um, the Americans look at this and they're like, "Do I want to go into a battle against a hundred thousand dug-in Japanese in this place? No, you know, Rabaul is going to be bypassed and and will become its own backwater and and one of the the largest concentrations of Japanese troops outside of the home islands that's been you know cut off and left to wither on the vine." Um, but it is sort of amazing that when you think about cartwheel as being really conceived of as a land air campaign to put a ring of air bases on islands around Rabaul to neutralize it. And yet, at the end of the day, you can make a certain argument that it was carrier air power yeah. that ends up doing uh, what those land-based air—we you know, didn't need the the air bases in, in the final analysis, because if you could neutralize Rabaul as, as a port— to the point that the Japanese aren't willing really to send warships down there anymore, you've kind of accomplished your mission.
0: Yep. And and, and again, as I said, it's the harbinger of things to come. Yeah. The carrier air power that is just doing nothing but growing for the US Navy right. is going to put a whipping on everything from here on out, all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Yep. Yeah. Cool. John, do you
1: have anything else you want to add in before we wrap her up? I don't think so. That was, this is a fun one. Uh, again, a, a little uh, sort of, a, I don't want to say overlooked, but uh, th- this is the last of, of Halsey's real desperation moments, and it is really kind of cool uh, that he was able to solve his problems with just two aircraft carriers. Again, we think about you know, the battle, second naval battle of Guadalcanal, where two battleships pull his fat out of the fire and here it's just it's two aircraft carriers do exactly the same thing
0: yeah and it's 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 vintage halsey from the decisions to the communications to everything this is vintage william halsey this and guana canal frankly were his finest moments really in my opinion absolutely
1: yeah it's downhill from now
0: (laughs) unfortunately yeah as we'll see as we progress So with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. Wherever you receive your podcast, give us a rating and review. We would appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this, tune into our YouTube channel and uh, give us a like and subscribe there as well. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Seth Perrin. I want to thank you very much for watching and for Bill. I'm going to say adios for Bill John. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a good time.
0: Yep, and we'll see you again soon.
1: All right.